scripture reading this morning is uh, taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25, and Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, the, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit." Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to see everyone this morning. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to get to share God's word with you. A word that I need as much or more than any of you need it. And so let me pray and then we'll start. Father, draw us near to yourself through your Son and by your Holy Spirit whom we pray would bear much fruit in our lives today and every day as he makes us more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so every, uh, so every day, uh, you and I, we come into contact with, in varying degrees, with, you know, dozens, more likely hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. Every day we are surrounded by the presence of people, okay? Uh, but what does their presence mean to you? Uh, how do you understand their presence? Are they primarily sort of background noise to your day? Are they kind of in the words of the Nike commercial, just witnesses to your greatness? Are they um, gifts to be celebrated? Are they competitors to be outdone? Are they obstacles to be overcome or removed? Are they resources to be mined? And used for your advancement and pleasure. What does the daily presence of people 
mean to you? Well, the ancient writer philosopher uh, Seneca once wrote, wherever there is a human being, there's an opportunity for a kindness. Wherever there is a human being, there's an opportunity for a kindness. And though I only know a little bit about Seneca, so I can't speak to how well he lived up to that perspective, it's a perspective that we should all take to heart. And so we're going to be focusing today on kindness as we continue our series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, that list of character qualities from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that the Holy Spirit is producing in us uh, that we might become more like Jesus, who is the ultimate example of all the fruit. And that last point is important. Uh, Because, like all things, our understanding of the fruit of the Spirit must ultimately flow from Christ himself. Okay? So in order to understand the background, uh, in order to understand and think about this fruit of kindness, what I want to do is first share the Old Testament background uh, for the picture of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5, so that we can better understand sort of the full import of what Paul is saying. Okay? And then we'll dive into Galatians 5 itself. Okay, so first, so first, uh, the Old Testament background of this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, okay? So, although there are some specific Old Testament verses, uh, especially from the book of Isaiah, that may kind of really directly lie in the background of this verse, uh, what I actually want to do is pull back and kind of think about the big picture of the Old Testament for a second, okay? And I'm going to need to pull together a couple of different threads, so I'm going to need you to uh, kind of follow me for a second, Okay? So the story of the Bible begins with God creating all things, and the culmination of that creation was Adam and Eve, right? And they were placed in Eden, which is pictured in the Bible as very fruitful. And they were made in the image of God so that they could know him and love him and worship him and reflect in a creaturely way his rule over the earth. And what they were going to do is they were to call the steward the resources of creation and to cultivate the potential of creation under his ultimate authority and for his ultimate glory. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve did not stick to the plan. Okay? They rebelled against God, which resulted in judgment on themselves, on the entirety of the human race, and even the creation itself, leading to a kingdom, a creation, and an age... And you'll see why I bring all three of those up. A kingdom, a creation, and an age that are now marked by sin, brokenness, death, and unfruitfulness. But rather than giving up, God enacts a plan of redemption, which involves the calling out of a specific people from among all the peoples of the earth to be the recipients of and the witnesses to his grace. And these people, which began with Abraham, are eventually called Israel, who kind of together are viewed in the Old Testament as a second Adam, okay? But as the relationship between God and Israel progresses, it becomes clear that Israel also will not, and in fact cannot, obey God. And this is because they, like all human beings, have inherited from Adam and Eve hearts that are hard and dead toward God. And as a result, Israel which is at times referred to in the Old Testament as a fruit tree, cannot produce the fruit of holiness and righteousness and obedience. But as this story of Israel's failures progresses and judgment becomes inevitable, God promises that one day 
he will judge sin once and for all. This cycle of sin, judgment, restoration isn't going to just keep going forever. One day he will bring it to an end. He will judge sin once and for all. And then he will, by his grace, restore his people and usher in his kingdom. And this kingdom, or the reality that it refers to, is also referred to from two other perspectives. From the perspective of a new creation and the perspective of the final days or the end of the age, or the last days. That is the end of history. And whereas the fallen kingdom and the broken creation and the old age were ushered in by the disobedience of Adam, God's kingdom and the new creation in the final days will be ushered in by the obedience of God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus, whom Paul calls the last Adam. And whereas the former were marked by sin and death and unfruitfulness, the latter will be marked by, among other things, uh, the life and fruitfulness, including the, fruitfulness, the fruit of righteousness among God's people. And this ethical and spiritual renewal of God's people will be the work of the Holy Spirit, who will be poured out in a new way okay, at the dawn of the kingdom or the new creation or the final days. And this ethical or spiritual renewal uh, is sometimes referred to as the circumcision of the heart. Now, circumcision is almost most likely, it's an agricultural or a horticultural image. Okay, it's an image of pruning, right? In horticulture, what do you do? You cut, right? You prune the dead, unfruitful ends of a branch uh, so that the fruit may be born, Right? And so in that context, you can see why heart circumcision is an appropriate uh, picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to, at some point, at the dawn of the kingdom or the new creation, he'll cut away the deadness of our hearts, of the hearts of God's people, so that they can bear fruit, including the fruit of kindness. And so the scaffolding, if you will, the, the architecture of the whole New Testament is that in Christ, these things have come to pass. In Christ, particularly his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his sending of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God and the new creation in the last days have dawned. Although surprisingly, surprisingly, they didn't arrive in all their fullness all at once. They are here, and we belong to them if we belong to Christ. But the old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the old creation and the old days are still here too, so that we live in a time where the two of them are overlapping. And it's living in this overlap that produces all the tension of our Christian life. But the kingdom of God and the new creation and the last days are here. And one day they will be fully consummated. And the kingdom of darkness and the old creation and the old days will be no more. Now, I wanted to provide this background for a few reasons. First, because it's necessary for understanding what Paul is trying to say here when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? And you're going to see how this informs the rest of the sermon. But I also wanted to include them for a couple of other reasons, because I wanted you to understand the breadth and the scope of what's happening when we see the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of kindness, manifested in one another's lives. Okay? When that happens, we're not just seeing an individual person maturing. 
we're seeing just how amazingly faithful God really is. When we see someone manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of kindness, we're seeing God keep his promises from long, long ago. His promise to one day circumcise the hearts of his people so that they might display the fruit of the Spirit, his character. When we see kindness grow in someone, we are seeing the promise-keeping character of God. And for that, we ought to worship and trust all the more deeply. But we're also seeing, whenever we see the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life, we are seeing the advance of the kingdom of God. We are seeing a manifestation of the new creation and the dawning of the last days. And so I want you to understand what exactly is happening whenever we see someone manifest the fruit of the Spirit. What a momentous thing it is and to be awed and humbled by that reality. And with that all in the background, okay, I want to turn to Galatians 5. And what I want to do is to look at our passage in the fruit of the Spirit, specifically the fruit of kindness, okay, through the lens of this truth, the cultivation and display of the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of kindness, involves a battle. The cultivation and display of the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of kindness, involves a battle. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Right, this verse illustrates the tension that comes from living in the overlap that I mentioned earlier. The overlap between the kingdom of darkness, the old creation, the old age on one hand, and the kingdom of God and the new creation or the last days on the other hand. It's important to understand uh, here that the word flesh doesn't refer to our physical bodies here. Okay? Although it means that in some other places in the Bible. Rather here, it refers... Um, to the sin and the fallenness and the weakness and the brokenness that are characteristic of that old kingdom of darkness, that old creation and the old age. All of us who belong to Christ have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is producing the fruit, including the fruit of kindness, that marked the kingdom of God in the new creation. But we simultaneously live in the middle of the kingdom of darkness and the old creation and the old age. And, that, and therefore, we are subject to the desires of the flesh. And this produces a battle within us. Having the fruit of kindness cultivated in our life is going to be a battle. Being kind and growing in Christ-like kindness is going to be hard and at times painful. Growing in kindness is going... The kind of battle that we're talking about is sort of like the battle to overcome an addiction, a drug addiction, right? So you take someone addicted to drugs who one day, by grace, realizes who he is and what he's become and the effect that he's having on other people, and he doesn't want to be that anymore. So he seeks help. And he seeks help and he turns from the drugs. But that is not the end of the fight. That is just the beginning of the battle, because now he has to face the withdrawal symptoms and the pains that come. And that's part of the process. Right? And now, 
And the more severe the addiction, the more painful and severe the withdrawal symptoms are. You and I are naturally addicted to sin, including unkindness. But Jesus, by his grace, opens our eyes to what sin is. And through the Holy Spirit, he gave us a desire to turn from those things and become like him. But that wasn't the end of the fight. It was just the beginning. Because we were addicted to unkindness. And we sometimes experience the withdrawal symptoms as we seek to be kind to others. Sometimes, like a recovering junkie, we just need a fix of unkindness. Because in this moment, it would feel just so good to be unkind to this person. We just need a fix of it. Whether actively unkind by criticizing, by, by undermining, by lashing out, by poking them right in that place where we know we'll draw blood, or by passively being unkind, by being cold, by being indifferent, by being subtly excluding, or any of the thousand other ways that we can be unkind. Sometimes, like a recovering junkie, we just want a fix of unkindness. And that's the kind of battle we're involved in as the Holy Spirit works in us to make us more kind. And knowing we're in a battle is the first step in winning that battle because it does at least a couple of things. One, it keeps us from being unduly discouraged. Some of us think that being like Christ, including being kind like Christ, ought to just kind of flow. And we get discouraged once it becomes really hard. But realizing that we're in a battle when we combine it with some of the other truths we're going to talk about, steals us, and it helps us persevere through the power of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, understanding that we're in a battle sobers us and makes us more serious. Not more somber, but more serious about what it requires to see the fruit of kindness grow in our lives. And this is important because the battle is one we have to join. Now, I want to be 100% clear, okay, Uh, The fruit of the Spirit originates from the Spirit, is cultivated and nurtured by the Spirit, will be brought to full completion by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work from beginning to end. It's the Spirit who will win a fight and win the battle. Yet, the Spirit's work in this area, unlike some other areas where God works solely on his own, is one that we must cooperate with. It's a battle that we have to join That's why there are active verbs in this passage. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Look at verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit. There are things that we have to do as part of this battle. And knowing that growing in kindness is going to be a battle that gives us a certain serious, a certain focus, a certain urgency. For example, it gives us a new focus and an urgency with which we approach our devotional lives. That is a life of scripture reading and meditation and prayer not as some kind of items to check off on a checklist, and certainly not as a way to earn God's favor or to make ourselves seem better than other people, right? but as a way of equipping and training for the battle to, to cultivate the fruit of kindness. Think about a soldier who's been drafted in the midst of wartime. He knows he's going into actual combat. Does he approach his daily training exercises with casualness? Does he think to himself, yeah, I guess it'd be nice if I were in shape before I got to battle and 
it might be a good idea if I could shoot, but man, the morning run is so early. I've got so much other stuff to do besides go practice shooting. Do you think that once he hits the battlefield, it might make a difference that he's in a decent shape because he's participated in all those runs? And that it might make a difference that he can shoot straight because of all those hours of practice. When when you're in the battle to be kind to someone, especially under conditions that don't make it easy, do you think that it might make a difference that you're regularly being taught through God's word about his kindness to you in Christ? Or that you're being regularly minded through prayer that you live solely by his kindness? Do you think those things might make a difference in the midst of that fight? So winning the battle to be kind involves first knowing that you're in a battle and ordering your life accordingly. But the second thing you need to win this battle is to know what kindness isn't. We'll talk more later about what it is. But even though we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we live in the midst of the kingdom of Satan. And one of Satan's great weapons is counterfeiting. Okay? For instance, counterfeiting is one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. Okay? As Scott mentioned last week, that when it comes to the things of God, there are the things of God, the opposite of the things of God, and then the counterfeits of the things of God. The opposites are often pretty easy to spot. Look at verse 19. It begins with this statement. Now the works of the flesh are evident. You don't need to be super wise or insightful to be able to pick them out. And then he goes on to list some of them. But counterfeits aren't always so easy to spot. But the key is, as Scott has mentioned, that the word fruit is singular. You're displaying a counterfeit of the fruit of kindness when that kindness isn't integrated with the other elements of the fruit and even other virtues that aren't even listed here. Because when that happens, you, in essence, lack integrity. That is a character where all these qualities are integrated. So I want to highlight two counterfeits. And we could list a thousand of them, but we'll talk about two. The first counterfeit is a, quote, kindness without a commitment to either truth or holiness, and therefore an unwillingness to confront or to take a stand when necessary. When necessary. This can look like kindness because it avoids confrontation, but this isn't kindness at all. Okay? It's an incredibly unkind thing, for instance, to allow someone to go on in habitual sin without confronting them in love. That kind of conflict avoidance may earn your reputation for kindness, but it's not kindness at all. It's cowardice. A woman named Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India in the early 20th century, uh, wrote a work entitled If, which uh, I'm going to reference a couple of times, that centers on what it means to know, as she puts it, Calvary love. Uh, Calvary being the place where Jesus was crucified. And she writes this. If I am afraid to speak the truth, lest I lose affection, or lest the one concerned should say, you do not understand, or because I fear to lose my reputation for kindness, if I put my own good name before the other's highest good, then I know nothing of Calvary love. 
The love and kindness displayed at Calvary wasn't some kind of mushy sentiment. The cross is both God's truthful confrontation of us in our sin and the payment of that sin of the suffering of his own son in our place. Kindness, quote-unquote, without truth or courage is a poor counterfeit of that kind of Calvary kindness. The other, the other counterfeit of kindness that I want to highlight is flattery. A man once said, gossip is when you say things behind someone's back that you would never say to their face, and flattery is when you say things to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Why would we do such a thing? Because we want something from them. So by flattery, I mean being nice to someone, perhaps even extremely nice, and perhaps maybe even for a while, but because you ultimately and eventually want something from them in return. That something may be somewhat obvious and crass, like money or a job or a ride or something like that, but it can be more subtle and quote-unquote normal something we want may be their kindness in return, their friendship, their emotional closeness and support, their dependency on our kindness, or a thousand other subtle things. And our flattery gets exposed for what it is when we ultimately don't get what we wanted. They don't invite us to things the way we invite them. They don't pursue me the way I pursue them. They're closer to other people than they are to me, and on and on. And as a result, we cease to be quote-unquote kind, which of course wasn't kindness at all, but flattery. Now obviously, a person's response determines what kind of relationship we have, but it, it doesn't determine whether we are kind to them or not. We aren't kind to people because of what they are or are not, but because of what God has been and is and will be to us. In 1 John 4.19, says, We love because he first loved us. Or if I can paraphrase it, we are kind because God has first been kind to us. Notice that the response or lack thereof of the other person isn't even in view here. In fact, there isn't even a direct object in this verse. We just love. If someone were to ask you, why are you being kind to me? And your basic fundamental answer is about them. Then you haven't yet known the kindness produced by the Spirit. The right answer to the question isn't, I'm kind to you because you fill in the blank. The right answer is whatever kindness I'm able to show you, it's because God has been kind to me. And since that isn't changing, my commitment to being kind to you isn't changing. What kindness looks like may change, but the commitment to it doesn't. Because God's kindness to us in Christ doesn't. So in order to win this battle, we have to first know that we're in a battle and order our life accordingly. And second, you have to know what kindness isn't. You have to be able to spot some of its counterfeits. 
But third, you have to know where the battle is taking place and who the combatants are. Look again at verse 17. The desires of the flesh and the desire of the spirit are in conflict. But where are these two things intersecting? They're intersecting here within my own heart. The battle isn't between someone else and the spirit's desire for me or his desire to produce kindness in me. Okay, the, the conflict is happening between the desires of the flesh as they manifest themselves in my own heart and the Spirit's desire. That is where the conflict is. It's my desire for self-glory, for self-comfort, for self-whatever that is in conflict. The Spirit's desire to produce kindness in me. And until we really deal with that, okay, we won't win this battle to be kind. Okay, when we're unkind to someone, what do we do? We start to explain ourselves and how they were unkind or how we were stuck in traffic for two hours right, or whatever else. And even if when we don't explicitly say so, the point is to convince the person we're talking to that our kindness wasn't really our fault. That it was the product of the circumstances. Because we are kind people. But we have to admit that those things didn't cause our unkindness. They revealed them. They revealed it. Again, listen to Amy Carmichael here. If a sudden jar can cause me to speak an impatient, unloving word, then I know nothing of Calvary love. For a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water however suddenly jolted. If bitter water comes spilling out, it's only because there was bitter water in the cup to begin with. The jolts we experience don't cause our unkindness. They reveal them. It's actually more than that. Not only are the unkindness of others and the difficulties of the day not the cause of our unkindness, they are the necessary arena, if you will, for displaying true Christ-like kindness. So a friend of mine was telling me about a show he watches called Game of Thrones. Uh, based on his description, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd recommend it to anybody. It sounds like it's a pretty graphic show. Um, but anyway, so it's one of these fantasy epics, you know, kings, knights, whatever. And there's a scene where this young man who has lost his father, uh, so his father was killed by the evil king, so this young man has risen up in rebellion. And he's having a conversation with someone in the midst of the war, and he recounts a conversation he had with his now-deceased father when he was younger. And he asked his father at that time, how can a man be brave when he's afraid? And his father replied, that's the only time a man can be brave. How can I be kind like Jesus when this person is being so unkind to me? When they are criticizing me, when they're undermining me, when they're opposing me, when they're excluding me. How can I be kind like Jesus when that is happening? That's the only time you can be kind like Jesus. That qualifier is important. To paraphrase Jesus from Matthew 5, if you are kind only to those who are kind to you, so what? Isn't everybody like that? 
How is that a display of the kingdom of God having broken into the world? How does that, a manifestation of the new creation, how does that bear witness to the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work in us? It doesn't. It doesn't. We're called to be kind like Jesus, who according to Romans 5, 8, and 10, died for you and me while we were still sinners and his enemies. Not when we were his friends, not when we bowed the knee in worship, not when we were serving him, not when we were even just neutral, but when we were his enemies. When we were his flat, rebellious enemies. I said earlier that we would get to what kindness is, and now we're beginning to see what it really is. The pursuit of the highest good of others, even enemies, and even at great cost to ourselves. And we're to be kind in this way because God has been kind to us in this way, in Christ. This is wonderfully and beautifully described in the passage from Titus 3 that we read earlier. I was going to say a lot about it, but then I realized I don't have to say much about it because the passage says what needs to be said. So look at that passage. Verses 1 and 2 are an exhortation regarding how we ought to behave toward others, concluding with a call to, be, to show perfect courtesy to all people. But why would we do that? Because, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but... God didn't respond to us as we deserve. Instead, verse 4, in contrast to the way we were, God displayed goodness, which is actually the same word that's translated kindness in Galatians 5. He displayed his kindness and loving kindness toward us. In verse 5, he saved us not because we deserved it, but because of his own mercy. And he made this salvation a reality in our lives, verses 5 and 6, through the Holy Spirit, whom he lavished. What a beautiful word. He lavished. It's a great gift to us. In order that our dead hearts might be circumcised and made alive and fruitful once again. How good, how kind is our God. Whereas the Old Testament, it repeatedly cries out, who is like him? So we need to see that the cultivation of kindness involves a battle and order our lives accordingly. We need to know that Jesus, what kindness isn't, and we need to know where the battle is being fought, what being kind like Jesus really is. The final thing we need to know if we're to win the battle in cultivating kindness is to know that the decisive blow has already been struck against the flesh and its kindness and its unkindness and that the Holy Spirit will claim eventual victory. It's really important to understand that despite acknowledging that there's a battle, that Paul isn't pessimistic in this passage. He's deeply confident. As I said earlier, the very presence of the Spirit and the very 
the slightest evidence of the fruit is for Paul evidence of just how faithful God has been to his promises from the Old Testament. Right? The, this battle isn't some stalemate between two equal but opposite forces, and it's certainly not one where the flesh is more powerful than the spirit. Okay? This is a battle in which the decisive blow has already been struck. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This verse is similar to Paul's teaching in Romans 6. Both of them deal with the fact that when the Holy Spirit united you by faith to Jesus in his death and resurrection, one of the things that happened was a decisive break with the power of sin in your life. Okay, you're still dealing with its presence, but you are not bound to its power. This, the decisive blow against the power and the reign of sin uh, and, uh, and of the flesh and of its unkind desires in your life has been struck. Right? Imagine, and others have used similar imagery before, that you are a citizen of a particular kingdom who was seduced by great promises and leaving that kingdom for another one only to wind up imprisoned once you get there. You were held in one of that foreign kingdom's prisons until one day your rightful king, at great cost to himself, rescued you and brought you back to his castle where he clothed you and fed you and housed you as his own. But the armies of the foreign king won't let you go without a fight. So they approach your king's castle, but they realize that they cannot breach the walls. They can't come in and get you. They know they've already lost. But they won't go down without a fight. So they stand outside the walls, calling your name, trying to convince you, uh, making more promises. And if that doesn't work, reminding you of your previous foolishness and how you don't belong in your king's castle. But that's all they can do. Because the decisive blow has been struck. And for all who are in Christ, our relationship with sin, with the desires of the flesh, with its unkindness, is like this. You've been released from sin's dominion, from the prison of unkindness. And yes, the flesh and sin and Satan are still present, harassing, calling, attempting to seduce. But they know that the decisive blow has been struck. One day you will be made like Jesus. I'll close with this picture. How many of you guys have seen The Matrix, the first one? The good one? Yes? Yes. Forget the, we'll, we'll pretend the last two didn't exist, right? So at the end of that movie, Neo, who is the one, right, is killed, is shot and killed. But then, just when all hope is lost, he is raised to new life, right? I don't know where they got that story from. Anyway, anyway, he walks out of the apartment, okay, where he was lying dead, and into a hallway where he turns, and he sees uh, the three agents, right? Uh, you, you guys remember this scene? Yes? And so they try to shoot him, but Neo, having realized who he is now, he doesn't even try to dodge the bullets. He just turns, and he, as the bullets are coming at him, he just says, no. Right? And the bullets just stop in midair, and they fall to the ground. He grabs one of them, and he looks at it curiously. And then, what he does is he turns, and he faces the agents, and he starts running at them, and they're freaking out. 
And then he, he jumps and he leaps into the head agent, Smith. Right? You remember the scene? And then what happens? Smith starts convulsing, right? Like, right? And he starts convulsing for a while. But then all of a sudden, what happens is that from the inside out, Neo remakes Smith. And it's just Neo standing there now. He has completely changed him. In his death and in his resurrection, Christ was crucified and raised again. And he has now, in his Holy Spirit, dived into us. And yes, the process of being transformed involves some convulsing, some battles within us. But he will completely, from the inside out, remake us into his spitting image. We will be one day kind like Jesus. We will reflect his kindness. And not just us, but the whole of creation will do this. What an amazing, amazing truth. Until that day, let us walk with the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit that he may bear the fruit of kindness in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come here awed and grateful for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would truly have your way with us and that you would remake us from the inside out into the spitting image of our kind and loving Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.